just a violent individual. Jimmy, you did a great job with that. What's up, what's up, what's up? Welcome back. We appreciate you joining us again. Jim Mooney here with my podcast partner, Luke Payson, and this is MMA FanCast. So a couple things I want to throw out before we get into some talk. One is that uh, we want to remind you of the event coming up for uh, Pittsburgh area. It's April 6th. It is for 247 Fighting Championships, their inaugural event. Uh, it's, it's a good card stacked with um, a lot of local fighters, and uh, they've got big fan following. So if you have not gotten your tickets yet, you're going to want to do that. Go to 247fighting.com where you can purchase the tickets. Uh, but I promise you, you're going to want to get them as soon as possible because that event will sell out. Um, speaking of 247, Later on in the show, we're going to have um, Ethan Goss on. He is one of the fighters. He fights out of uh, the State College area. Um, he is, uh, he's fought in Bellator before. He is, Ethan is, uh, he's known as the Wolverine. He's got a huge fan following. And a, a lot of it is because of his fight style. Um, he's just, you know, puts his uh, nose to the grindstone. Hard, hard worker, you know, he's endeared himself to uh, Pittsburgh area MMA fans with that blue collar style fight. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a good interview that we have coming up. Um, so stay with us. You'll hear that in just a few minutes. Uh, normally we prep for each show, uh, but for this one, uh, I, I told Luke, um, pre-recording, pre-podcast tonight that I was just going to throw some things at him and, uh, and let him respond to, uh, to just different things that have been on my MMA mind. Uh, so Luke, before we get into that, do you got anything you wanted to share, anything going on that's, um, no, I think that's I think that's good. Obviously, we've been talking on the podcast a lot about the April 6th fight and, and because of regional MMA, we're just super excited to be able to interview we're aiming to have uh three of the pro fighters interviewed three of the pro fights interviewed on our podcast to really give you um a sense of at least the pro side of the card there's going to be a great amateur card too and uh i was talking to jim you know we could probably interview every fighter uh going into this event and really get a get a sense but sometimes that becomes a lot to do. So really encourage everybody to come out. Uh, amateur fighting can be really super exciting as fighters kind of learn and develop and try to figure some things out. So we don't want to ignore the amateur card. I think at some point as 247 builds up, if they have an amateur belt on the line or something, which this time they don't in the inaugural, I think we'd love to get some more experienced amateurs in. But uh, but for now, I think we're going to focus on the, the pro card for that. And Jim and I are also working behind the scenes to get a couple of fighters and do some more interviews that aren't necessarily just tied uh, to Pittsburgh or 247. But we're just so excited about it coming up. It's under a month away now, and so we're super pumped. April 6th is going to be here. And because we really want to focus on covering regional MMA, particularly in Western Pennsylvania, 
we've been focusing on that, but I do, I, I do have some ideas and we are going to try to interview some other people. I know before I was on the podcast, they had gotten to Bellator and, and gotten some credentials and been around. So we're going to keep working on the, uh, on, on really being uh, a great podcast for people that are fans of MMA in general, fans of regional MMA in Pittsburgh, and then also just fans of, of guys that love the sport talking about it. So you're up. Go ahead. Shoot away, Jim. All right, here it goes. So we had a fight recently. It was a pretty high-profile fight just because it involved what I would consider to be the first ever trade in, uh, in MMA history where – um, or organizations swap yeah. fighters. Um, yep. So talking about Ben Askren, yep. he took on Robbie Lawler. And so, you know, you may already have a sense of where this question is going to yeah. go. Um, my opinion is that, you know, if, if I were in the ring and I were Herb Dean, if I saw that arm drop limp, yeah. My first reaction is he's out. And I recall being in um, in a restaurant. My wife and I were watching it, and she screamed at the same time that I did, he's out. And, you know, but she, her reaction was a little different. She thought that he was maybe going to die in the ring from, uh, from that bulldog choke. Um, but, you know, Herb Dean moved in. He grabbed the arm. I didn't see any confirmation at the time that uh, – that, told me that Robbie was was with it and conscious and aware of what was going on. So, you know, I don't see how you could fault Herb Dean or whoever that ref is. Yeah. I'm just curious what your opinion was on that situation as it happened and how things unfolded afterwards. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting situation. Um, I think a couple good things that happened out of it was that Herb Dean um, did grab the arm and shook it. Uh, I, I think that's a that's a good thing for a ref to do because sometimes they, they might jump a little bit too quickly. Um, I also think, which was really respectful, it was covered. I found it on YouTube later. It was covered, and they recorded it, um, where Robbie goes up to uh, Herb after some of the excitement had worn off or they were still in the ring and told him that he's a great, uh, great ref and that there's no hard feelings. And, and you kind of heard uh, Herb Dean, he didn't say he was sorry, but he just said, hey, this is what I did. And he said, I, I checked with you verbally. I, I, you know, I shook your arm. So I think it, it, it's good to see the respect. It's also good to see uh, a ref that kind of has a checklist. You know, we know that uh, Big John McCarthy and Herb Dean do a lot of teaching referees. And of course, if you go back in UFC's history, there's been some terrible refs that don't do checkdowns like that. You know, there's been refs that have ended fights before there was even a choke on. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I, I honestly think overall it's fine. In that exchange between Robbie and, and Dean after when, when he was kind of saying, dude, you did a good job, you're a great ref, um, Robbie said he gave the thumbs up sign. I, I have not been able to find it. Maybe somebody out there can find whether or not there's a video of him from the other side. Our camera didn't give his arm, but he said he gave a thumbs up sign uh, because when Dean said, Hey, I, I asked how you're doing and I shook your arm. He said, yeah. And I gave you a thumbs up sign. Now what Dean said at that point was I, I didn't see it. And then he said, you know, I'm sorry for not seeing the, the thumbs up. He didn't really apologize for stopping the fight early. Cause I don't think he needs to. Um, the other thing that I'll bring up 
as a fan is um, I, they're going to rematch it. I think Robbie kind of showed that Ben Askram's uh, fight game needs some work. And, and I, don't, I don't mean that to be disrespectful, but it was a great thing to get him from 1FC. Um, he's very much a one-trick pony. Not that he's not a pro athlete, not that he's undefeated. He is undefeated. He is great. But he got pretty much whipped on. There was that flurry of about 30 seconds where I, I respect the ref for letting it go. I think um, in, a, in a lot of lower class uh, organizations where the fighters aren't as seasoned, you could have stopped that from the bludgeoning he was getting. Um, and I do think that it was right because he was still moving and he was still kind of with it. But there was a couple moments in there, given Robbie's uh, ferocity and ground and bound, that I actually think there was more damage done to Robbie. One of the things I think that's interesting in MMA is that damage doesn't matter if you get choked out, right? Or if you get caught in a submission. So uh, I think the damage of the fight was way clearly to Robbie, even physically at, at the end. And so I, I think it's going to be a great rematch. Um, the the betting lines were, were pretty strong in favor of, of Robbie going in. I mean, pretty, pretty good um, favorite going into this fight. And so I'm going to be curious. Um, I don't know if we want to talk about betting lines a lot on this show, uh, but it, it just kind of goes to show kind of what the the group is thinking or what the or what the community in MMA um, is, is thinking. So it'll be interesting to see if if Ben goes up or down for the next fight as far as the betting lines. So and I didn't hear if that was official. I know they talked about it. Is it has it been announced for a call? Um, no, you know what? You're right. Uh, I don't know if it's official. It was just a Dana White comment saying that he wants to run it back. I'm not – you're right. That doesn't necessarily mean – that it's official. Yeah. You know, I obviously Dana White's going to do what Dana White wants to do. But, you know, so many times we've heard him say, this is not going to happen. No, no such thing. And, right. And then Ronda Rousey ends up in the UFC. You know, for oh, yeah. he said, no women, no women. And now look at it. You know, it's, it's definitely a staple and a mainstay in the UFC. Um, so it's, you got to take take it with a grain of salt what the, uh, what Dana says. Well, what's also funny with the Dana comment is I can find video after video of Dana saying I don't make matches the night of a fight because he's gotten in trouble before saying things like when they were in Abu Dhabi and uh, and the Spider Silva uh, got got warned for timidity because he was goofing off and running around and refusing to finish. Right? Uh, Dana said that. The next time he fought, he was going to fight on an undercard, not on the main pay-per-view to defend his belt because he was so upset. And, of course, the next time Spider fought, he was the main event on a pay-per-view. So, yeah, you're right. Dana sometimes says things. Uh, I think that would be a good rematch. Um, it's kind of one of those things where Robbie Lawler is always a couple good wins away from another title shot. But at the same point, um, he's kind of at that point where he's got a lot of mileage on him and is a great litmus test for a lot of people. Um, I, if we're predicting the future, I don't think that Ben has the ability to change his style this late in the game. He might catch a wrestling. He might catch a submission move again, but, but I just think coming in to the UFC where at 170 there's a lot of great talented strikers. Um, I don't think that, that he's going to last 
as far as his style. So we'll we'll see. That that's my perspective. We'll see what happens. Yeah, it, it definitely will be interesting to see. So something I heard recently, and it was I was listening to another podcast, and they were talking about alpha males. Um, so I'm going to reference uh, Connor McGregor a little bit in this, and um, and then. You know, I'll get your opinion on this, see, see where you stand on this. But when I think of an alpha male, I think of obviously someone who's a leader. Um, you know, same thing in the, uh, in the animal kingdom. Somebody who leads the pack, the others look towards this person. But I, but I think of things in a different way when it comes to alpha male, and that is um, confident, um, but not in an egotistical way, but carrying themselves in such a way that, you know, people, you know, when we're talking, you know, outside of the animal kingdom, people are going to gravitate towards this person and, you know, try to emulate them in some way, shape or form. Now, you know, I remember when uh, McGregor came into the UFC and I'm bringing him up now because recently he you know, just recently he was in the news with, uh, with an arrest. And, right. Um, we had talked uh, a while back. Uh, this is when myself and Ryan Middleton were, um, were doing a podcast. And I had made a comment about McGregor, and that was that I thought he was um, a train wreck, you know, in the making. And if somebody didn't like, – around him he was you know he was going to catch on fire and not in a good way and you know look at what we've seen recently um from him and you know like i i think with his um smack talk if you can even call it that now i think it goes overboard and now we have other fighters who try to mimic that and they they think if if they can elevate that sort of conversation it becomes newsworthy and, you know, gets a lot of uh, clicks or likes on YouTube and it's going to get them more money. Yeah, I don't know if that actually translates, but I see no relevancy or anything beneficial um, to the fight game with that smack talk. And, you know, I feel like this alpha male that, uh, that they're, you know, this ego that they're trying to, put forward is is going to damage uh, to some extent the MMA community on the national scene or, or maybe international level when it comes to UFC and Bellator and if they don't tone it down they're going to turn people off and um, you know with okay so uh, McGregor getting arrested this is all attributed to you know the the fame going to his head and you know, the money that he has now where he doesn't need to ever do anything ever again. And his, you know, his, him and his wife and his, his kid are set for life and his grandkids and probably his grandkids, grandkids, you know, so where does this stop? I mean, is, is there going to be a stopping point? Who's it going to be? What's it going to look like? And, you know, how is Luke Payson involved in this? Hey, well, I appreciate it. That was a, it, it's a big setup. You know, some people might not know that I'm a I'm a licensed professional mental health counselor, and so I I think it it is a concern. I have counseled 
uh, obviously confidentially, I, I'm not going to use names, but I have counseled former professional boxers that were very big in the 80s and into the 90s and that are now really struggling with some addiction issues, probably, probably connected to head trauma, as we know with CTE. Um, there's a decent number of cases of depression, obviously leading to some suicides as well as as well as mood swings and drug use and stuff. And so I think one of the challenges is that you have people that have the alpha male or the smack talk that never become famous. I mean, I've counseled close to a couple thousand uh, clients that were inmates that were in some type of correctional facility. And there's a lot of very unhealthy uh, masculinity or very unhealthy mindset. Some of it is, I'm going to put on a front because I feel vulnerable. And so if I feel vulnerable, I'm going to act tough. Um, and I always think that that anger and, and kind of that, um, that attitude of, if you look at me wrong, I'll beat you up. That, that certainly exists on the street and exists in prisons um, is, is a lot of fear showing. I, I don't think that's necessarily the case with Connor. I, I think one of the things we see a lot with uh, rich and famous people it, it can be movie stars, it can be rock stars, it can be um, athletes. I don't really think it's necessarily connected to him just as a fighter. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, we just, it, the news just broke recently that rich and famous people were bribing high level colleges to get their uh, rich, spoiled kids into their colleges illegally, which is just crazy, right? And so what it comes down to, I was reading some articles on that, and one of the ladies, um, one of the actresses from Full House got caught up and actually got um, got some type of court appearance uh, recently, and uh, she was she was the one that was uh, married to Jason Stamos on the show, and uh, and so if you grew up in the in the '90s, she was kind of the the heartthrob, right? But it, what it comes down to, it comes down to elitism, kind of feeling like you can do what you want. I do think there's some privacy concerns from a legal standpoint, what what they claim that Conor McGregor was reacting and what they claim the situation was, that he was coming out of a club or some type of environment like that. It was about 5 a.m. And, um, and a guy started videotaping him. He asked them or somebody from his posse asked him not to be, not to videotape and the guy continued. So he grabbed it and, and smashed it. I think one of the challenges is that where is the privacy there? I'm not defending Conor McGregor, but one of the challenges of famous people that do think that they can do what they want. I'm not, not saying that's not part of the problem, but also that, that people aren't respecting them as humans, as individuals. You're videotaping a guy. I also think that, that Conor's indiscretions are growing. I mean, he's a grown man. He has a longtime girlfriend. I don't believe they're married, although maybe I'm not up on the news. Um, and they have a child. And they have a child together. But, but one of the things is, is that there's been footage that's come out in past where he's been apparently partying with, with girls and potentially, whether it's faithful or not, you know, potential concerns on that. And so there's always a chance that, that he was caught at a vulnerable moment early in the morning. Maybe there was uh, some activity around him. He didn't want being videotaped. But I, I, I actually don't think this case was connected to the, the, uh, the smack talking like in the Habib where he attacks the bus, which th- there has been, I'm only going to say rumors, there has been rumors that that was actually orchestrated by the U.S. 
that that was actually orchestrated by the UFC, um, or at least allowed by the UFC, um, that they kind of knew that Connor was coming in, that, that they sort of uh, organized it to, to, to kind of, or at least permitted it to happen, knowing that it would uh, boost sales, not, not realizing that it would get to the point of injuring fighters. I don't think that is not what I'm saying, but they really like Connor when Connor was on tour with Floyd and he started using the N word. I mean, let's face it. Let's face it. That was all done for promotion. I mean, Floyd reacted like it was the worst thing he had ever heard. Are you serious, Floyd? Right. He's the king of smack talking too. And then minutes after the fight, they're at the uh, fight press. And if you watch the live stream, they're hugging, talking, talking each other up, saying that they're the best opponents they've ever had. And they're really great guys. And Connor was calling him his buddy. And, and so the reality is all that stuff of rubbing his head and insulting his masculinity and, and gone in the N-word was 100% fabricated on both sides. And I think something that Joe Rogan pointed out that's important with the Habib, because Habib's now suspended uh, because of the uh, of the attack after the, the massive Habib-Connor fight, is that in Habib's world, there is no smack talking. And, and it is, I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. And and when, when Connor started talking about personal stuff and his religion and his training partners and his dad, that Habib both caught on tape and according to Dana White, doesn't care that, that it could get him suspended, doesn't care that it could take the belt from him. Because I think that there's a sense, and I'm not justifying his violence, but I think there's a sense that he has the mindset that, that he's not going to allow the championship or the belt or fame to change who he is. He's just going to be who he is. What's interesting with people that don't talk smack, you think of, now he was part of that trade you were talking about, Mighty Mouse Johnson, the the most technically proficient fighter you've ever seen, right? I mean, just uh, just insane stuff. The, 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 the toss slam into an arm bar with one second, second remaining. I mean, just crazy stuff. But over and over and over again, he was pressured to talk smack to the point where he actually did interviews where he said, I'm not going to do it. I'm, I'm a husband. I have kids. I'm respectful. I'm somebody that I just want to get out there and fight the best. And, and he actually said prior to his trade, and I think that's one of the reasons why the trade happened. He was interviewed as saying, you know what? I admire the Asian perspective of fighting. And I think that's one of the reasons why that got that rolling. Because he actually said, he didn't say 1FC by name, but he said, I really admire the Asian perspective of fighting, which is respectful and honorable, and you do your absolute best, but there's this sense that in Asian culture at 1FC, if Connor went over there, he would be a pariah. They would not want him. They would not like him. If you send somebody over there that is disrespectful or that is vulgar or that is in any way uh, sort of... Um, bad-mouthing the opponent, they wouldn't like it because it's about the honor. So I do think that, that there's there are people in MMA, I remember Brian Stan, probably my all-time most respectful fighter ever, Brian Stan, who was fighting uh, Sakara and and, uh, and knocked him out and stopped the fight early and looked up and said, I'm done. Um, and, you know, and he was, he was classic. And even the greatest trash talker, probably even better than Connor, was Chael Sonnen. And you can find videotapes um, I was sad to see Chael win because I, I, I love Brian Stan so much. 
but when Brian and, and what a what a hero and what a what just a wonderful guy. But but anyhow, um, the great Chael Sonnen would trash talk your grandmother, right? Um, said I am not going to say anything bad about a hero. Brian Stan is the greatest guy, and he actually said before he fought him, I hope Brian Stan runs for president. I'd vote for him. So I, I think one of the things that we bring up, while I can talk bad about how Chael talks trash, Chael does it as a promotion tool. From everybody that interviews Chael to his own podcast to people that are in his inner circle, Chael's a very respectful, like loving, chill guy that, that turns it on for the sake of doing interviews. And he would not have fought John Jones at all for the 205 belt, not a chance if he hadn't talked trash. And, and so I think even, even Chael as a trash talker knew, I'm not going to trash talk Brian Stan. He's a hero. He's a guy that cares more about um, humanity than he does winning and losing. And Brian even talked about that, that um, he's been in real fights to the death and, and, and he's lost comrades in, in the war. And he's and the, even a bad day of losing, in the cage doesn't mean he lost. And you'll still hear people like Connor, people like others talk about, I'll kill you in the ring and I'll do anything. No, they won't. Like, no, they won't. It's a sport. And, and, and this mindset, I think that you brought up of, um, I'm a tough guy is it's, it's a sport because, because they're allowed to be tough. They're, they're, it, it, it's okay to be in there and tough and say, I'm going to, I'm going to go out on my shield and, and I'm going to give it my all and all that. that. That's fine. But the reality is it's a sport and it's legal and it's, legislated and it's legalized and everything's everything's good you do that on the street which some of the guys have done now it's a crime but but it is a sport and so i think sometimes the vernacular around fighting i've heard coaches and corners during a fight not only being uh vulgar and like just constantly swearing but also saying things like you have to kill this person and and you know you've got to go out there and hurt them and and, and i just don't think that's the attitude so some of it's fed my coaches, but hopefully that wrapped up because I know that I could go on longer. So there we go. Any other questions? Yeah, well, um, yeah, I just wanted to um, to respond to that, and it's interesting sure. what you said about uh, about Chael, and yeah. you know, he has an on camera persona. Mm -hmm. And I recall uh, it, it, this guy is one of my all time favorite athletes. Period. Um, but you know, definitely in MMA, and that is Baz Rutten. Yeah, um, he's, he's a good guy, and he had comments recently about McGregor, and you know I found his comments to be very, very um, like insider information, sort of. And he said that, and and I I kind of figured this was the case, but to hear him say it, you know, you can find the interview out there, but he said that. McGregor knows when the camera's on and he yeah. knows when it's time, you know, for the showman to come out. And when he's in private, he's a totally different person, humble and cordial and respectful of the people that are around him. So to me, though, that is, while I believe everything that Rutan said, um, and also to add to that, McGregor himself has said that you know paraphrasing it's it's part of the game uh, because yeah. afterwards you know there is no ill will for him and his opponent um, and he doesn't speak badly about them anymore after the fight right 
Um, but I find that contradictory to, to have that private um, life um, personality, but yet, you, you know, your ego um, for the sport and the ego that you're trying to create for attention and possibly turning it into more money for you is now getting you in trouble with the law. And I know you mentioned um, that, you know, the UFC, maybe not knowing it was going to get carried away, had some knowledge and let it play out. Um, but, you know, I, I still put all of that on uh, McGregor and those surrounding him. And I, I feel like, as I said before, I guess there's a train wreck that's about to happen, and, and I'm hoping it doesn't because I, I was a big fan of his. I'm still a fan, not so much as before, but it just it, it bothers me to see fighters go out there and think that they've got to destroy their opponent verbally and totally disrespect them because, I, you know, I think, um, you know, this world needs to show more respect and kindness towards other people when we start elevating athletes in this manner. I mean, you know, just, just look at, um, you know, locally here with, uh, with the Pittsburgh Steelers and what they went through with one of their receivers. Yeah. Brown. Just, you know, where, it, where is this train wreck going to end? Is it going to keep going through and, you know, start demolishing towns and, you know, I, I think it just it carries over into society for, for uh, the younger kids um, who are looking up to these athletes, and they think that they've got to act that way um, in order to make it far in life. Well, speaking of that, in, in Antonio Brown's first press conference with the Oakland um, – uh, sorry, I don't think they're Oakland anymore, but the Raiders. Um, he actually said, because people asked him, he said a couple of times that he hopes to be an inspiration – to the kids that want to be a great, uh, you know, a great football player and that. And, and of course, this is part of it. I mean, we, we could talk about this so much longer. Here's the thing. I think that was an act. Because Antonio Brown's like, I love the Pittsburgh Steelers. I'm so grateful for what they gave me. The fans are the best. The Rooneys are the best. Everybody's the best. He just wanted money. And he knew he wasn't going to get it there. And he started, to, I mean, I, I think one of the challenges is, and I know you get bothered by the, the smack talk and the disrespect. I think one of the challenges is people use disrespect as a tool to get what they want. And, and, and it, it's, it's a pain when it works. And, and it's one of those things where maybe the Steelers just didn't want the hassle of him staying. I think a third round and a fifth round draft pick is too low. And I think one of the reasons why the Raiders were able to get away with that, um, because if you, if you look at the, if you look at the draft picks, when they send OBJ to Browns, it's a higher draft pick. It's 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 the first round draft pick. It's a much higher round draft pick plus a trade of a person. So I I think there was some damage on AB. Yes, he got his trade. Yes, he's going to get his money that he wanted. But but I think some of the value that, that got lost on him because now the Raiders or any team have to worry. Hey, if he's not happy here, he's going to create drama. He's going to create uh, because it's just interesting how OBJ got traded. Um, and it, it's a higher value for probably a similarly talented wide receiver. So it's just interesting to see. But one of the things that uh, Antonio Brown pointed out is he, he never said, I want young boys or young athletes to look up to me. And uh, 
and role model off me as far as my attitude. He was very clear in saying, look up to me as far as my performance. And I think that's a challenge because he knows he's one of the best performing wide receivers out there six years in a row of more than 1,200 receptions per year and six seasons in a row. And he never said my attitude. He never said my work ethic. He said, uh, I, I hope I inspired kids that, that by my performance. And so I think that's a thing that Connor, and if we're going to get back to MMA, Connor's performance of late, and by of late, I mean in the last three years, have been losses. And I think Connor's going to think long and hard before he comes back again because more and more fighters, first of all, the 155-pound division is just getting harder and harder. Tony Tony Ferguson, um, I mean, you're, you're telling me that he's going to be able to fight these guys? I, I mean, remember when, and I, I love him so much, remember when the 145-pound champ was going to come up and fight him, but then they were then they were worried about his weight cut? Les Holloway, um, you know, when, when, when he wanted to take him on short notice, he, he would have destroyed Connor. He would have destroyed Connor coming up. From 145. Now he couldn't lose the weight in time, and it was. I think that was a bit of a shame. Um, but but I think it's just one of those things where I truly believe that Connor is not going to beat anybody in the top three and maybe the top five in 155 or really any division, any division in the UFC. If they're legitimately in the top three, if he comes back, he might fight fight and beat a Diaz. But who cares? They haven't fought in years either, and it's one of those things where. If he's fighting and beating actively ranked top three opponents in the UFC, I don't think it's going to happen. One, because uh, of all his distractions, whether it be the, the legal stuff, whether it be his whiskey company, whether it be uh, his modeling and just everything else he's doing. Um, but I also think his talent level. Was he incredible? And, and what are his strikes dynamic and his knockout of Eddie Alvarez and coming back and, and, and getting the 155-pound belt? Yeah, it was a beautiful thing. I just think he's met his limit based on his desire to still get better. I, I don't think the desire to still get better is there. I mean, I understand anybody fighting Habib as a wood chipper, but you and I both saw that, and Habib did exactly what he was going to do, and Connor looked like he had no no, no plans, no strategy. Now, that might be because Habib's the best. It might be because Habib just is so good, but there were times where he was sitting on his butt, he was back up against the cage, with Habib on his legs. Habib hadn't done any ground and pound yet. That was early in the first round. Habib was just holding him down, literally nothing. Not not, not, not any aggression off Habib other than him just wrapped around his legs. And, and Connor was just looking like, I don't know what to do. And, and I, I point that out, not to make fun of Connor, but just to say, how could you not have spent time in that position? You know, how could you not have trained that? It, Habib wasn't ground and pounding. You, you weren't under threat at that point. So anyhow, so it's just, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, you know what? We will. Uh, I'm going to make note of that. We'll get into that conversation um, in the next few podcasts because Connor did have, um, after some time, a weight distance from that fight. He did have a comment. He put something out on Twitter on social. I believe it was Twitter, but it was on social media, and it was to your point he recognized that he was not doing anything and he didn't put much um, planning, I guess you could say, but I'll, I'll bring up the tweet um, or, you know, whatever it was, his quote and how he talked about 
um, the focus now he has he's changed his um, his thought so to speak or um, uh, maybe approach going into fights and fighting opponents similar to Khabib or even fighting Khabib again and he you know he recognized where he made mistakes in his camp that then hindered him um, in that in that fight. So, okay, so that uh, those were the things that okay, good. Yeah, a few things I wanted to toss at you, um, but as we mentioned before, we uh, we did have somebody uh, calling in to uh, to the podcast, and that was Ethan Goss, and we're going to go ahead and go to that interview now. All right, so as we mentioned before, um, our special guest tonight is Ethan Goss. He is joining us by phone. We had some technical difficulties getting the video to work, but um, between Luke and I, we were smart enough to figure this out. And Ethan is joining us right now by phone. He's going to be fighting April 6th at um, South Point. It is Princecape Arena. He is taking on his, uh, his opponent is Elijah Cavender. Um, and uh, this will be the inaugural event for 247 Fighting Championships. Last time we talked to Ethan uh, was just before um, his event, his uh, fight with Bellator at State College. At that time, my podcast partner was Ryan Middleton. Um, Ryan has gone on to greener pastures. He is now the owner slash president. I don't, did we actually establish what he wanted to be called? Luke, do you recall? Owner. He, owner. He'd prefer to be called owner, yes. So uh, it is now Luke and I. Uh, we've improved the, the podcast with uh, better looking <laughs> podcast partners. So, um, Ethan, how do you feel about 247 coming up in uh, April? Well, first off, we're just going to, we're going to take Ryan down a notch here and we're not going to call him president. I don't want to have to call him Mr. Middleton. So, <laughs> nah, Ryan, Ryan's a cool dude. Uh, I've been dealing with him for a while. Um, you know, I've met him with getting ready for Bellator and stuff. So, and I uh, actually kind of helped him get started uh, with this promotion. I kind of helped him find, you know, find a cage and stuff like that for him to buy to get set up to do this. So, um, yeah, I'm excited for it. We've been, it's been in the works for a while. Great. Yeah. Uh, speaking of exciting to fill our, our listeners in your last fight, your four and four as a pro one forty five er with two KOs, one sub win and one sub decision. Your last fight was in December of last year, a couple months ago. Uh, and you won by KO in round two. Um, and that's, that looks exciting on paper. Uh, what what was the situation in the fight? How did you get to that KO? What was going on in that fight? Um, you know, uh, prepare. We had I don't know eight weeks to prepare for that fight, and I uh, fought Brendan Seiler, who is uh, a very well known name. He's fought in Bellator, has a win in Bellator, uh, was pretty much next in line for a title shot under CES. Uh, so he's been all over the place and fought in a lot of big promotions and. Uh, you know, we knew we couldn't take him lightly, but I, uh, you know, we we did a lot of game planning and a lot of preparing for that fight. Um, we had a had a great plan. Uh, I had a great, you know, coaching staff and, and team with me. And uh, you know, in, in the fight, you know, we just 
established distance and, and established our range early, figured out timing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was able to control the, uh, the stand-up part of it. And he shot, you know, he shot once in the first round. He ended up getting a takedown, but I was able to reverse and finish it around on top. The second round come out, same thing. I uh, He kind of started to lay back a little bit, and I started to be able to open up. But uh, I started to be able to make in-fight adjustments. Okay. And, and I really noticed him in that fight. Um, every time I come forward, I noticed that he would tuck and try to throw the overhand. Mm. And uh, so I just read off that. And uh, he eventually pushed into a clinch uh, because I started opening up on the feet. And uh, we were against the cage, and I ended up reversing him and taking him down. And then when he went to stand up, I waited till he got up, and I caught him with a knee mm. and a clinch that, that buckled him. And then I opened up some strikes and caught him with a second knee that, that finished him. Wow, that's great. Thanks for, the, thanks for the rundown. I think it's good for our audience to kind of hear that when you're in the fight, at least you as a fighter, it sounds like you kind of, you kind of have good recall. I know some fighters – kind of just say, oh, I don't really know what happened. I was just in there fighting. But you sound like a, a mix of cerebral where you kind of are doing in-fight adjustments. And also it was really it was really cool to hear your replay on kind of what happened. Um, was it anywhere as, as, as cool as the Venom page knee? Because you could tell us, yes, we believe you. No, it wasn't that cool. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't that bad. Hey, it still won you the fight, so it counts. And that's a really exciting finish. That's a really good diverse strike to the people that don't know. Knees um, to the head or above the clavicle are legal in MMA and professional rules, but usually, at least in Pennsylvania, not in amateur. So it is something we've talked about before on the podcast, how the rules in amateur MMA in Pennsylvania tend to really benefit a grappling approach or at least a wrestling background where the rules in pro MMA uh, are much more open and tend to really give some at least some advantages to the Muay Thai style of striking, which is sounds pretty exciting. Um, in fact, to follow up on that, do you do you incorporate a lot of Muay Thai when you were talking about clinch and knees? So I'm going to assume you do, or is that just something that was new for that fight? Well, I mean, we I've always always you know worked it in the game plan. You know what I mean? Work, worked on it in the gym, but uh, I started training with a new striking coach that last camp and uh, little did people know at the gym or you know I had to find out through seeing stuff on the internet but at one point in time the guy that I'm working with was ranked 12th in the world in kickboxing um, <laughs> so and he, he he has a nasty dangerous clinch game uh, and he gets in there and he works a lot of pads with me and, and uh, you know he works a lot of clinch with me and he's also a great wrestling coach too mm. um, so I, I got to work with this guy, and and he his name's Darren Cassidy, and uh, he really, really, really changed my my look on things. You know what I mean? Uh, he re- he really made a big difference there. Uh, like I said, the in fight adjustments and stuff like that. Like he really drilled that into my head. Like I need to pay attention to stuff. I need to you know I need to yeah. focus on these certain things. And he might be the loudest guy I've ever heard in my life. Like, I could hear him playing his day in the corner over everyone else in the whole arena that night. And uh, he, he has, like, such an intimidating voice. It's like you're almost afraid not to do what he tells you to do <laughs> while you're in there. I think that's great stuff. Something that really is hard 
in MMA as we've been interviewing fighters is the fact that MMA fighters fight alone because they're in their cage by themselves, but really they carry the coaches and the team in with them. And what you do in the gym and the, and the adjustments as the new coach, and I'm so glad you threw out um, thanks to your coach and kind of the value of knowing that you can only do what you know, you know, and, and that's a big part of MMA going in with a game plan or at least going in with the ability to adapt. Um, that's actually something Jim and I have asked other fighters. Usually their answer is no when we ask them, Ethan, whether or not they can hear um, their corners. Um, and so it's really cool that you, you can actually hear Coach Darren uh, really loudly. Now to rewind the clock a little bit to, ma to maybe a little bit of a sensitive topic or a little bit of a, a frustrating situation in November of 2017, uh, your last loss was by split decision. And you've brought up a couple times um, that you're really getting better at and you're really learning how to do in-fight um, adjustments. Uh, kind of what, what happened in that fight that, that kind of gave you a win in the eyes of one judge but a loss in two others? Do you kind of have a better perspective on what's an adjustment you could have done or kind of how it slipped away or sort of give, give me a rundown on, on that because obviously it was tight. And for people that don't know, a split decision means that one judge – saw you as winning and two saw you as losing so it wasn't like you sucked or anything so kind of what was that fight like uh you know that fight there i i got too comfortable uh. um in in certain areas you know like like that kid that i fought andrew salas that i fought at bellator man that kid was a bull like mm. you could hit him with a baseball bat and he was still coming forward but uh what he did was uh you know he tried to take me down but he couldn't succeed in taking me down he was so he would hold me to the fence. Right. And, uh, you know, I got too comfortable in that situation. Instead of turning myself off the fence uh, right. or, uh, you know, looking to move my own offense. And, uh, you know, I was being active with my back was to the fence. I was landing like, you know, short inside elbows sure. and, and yeah. inside knees. I was being active in the clinch the whole time. But uh, it wasn't until the third round in that fight where I basically flipped the script. You know, we come out, he come forward, he tried to push me into on a takedown, went to the fence, and uh, the third round, it was just kind of in my head, like, you got to do something. So right. I, hit a, I actually hit a switch and uh, was able to get in on a high cross and dumped him, what we call the DC dump, like Daniel Cormier does. Yeah. Uh, oh, dumped yeah. him on the fence, and then I just, like, totally 100% dominated the third round, well, at least four minutes of the third round in that fight. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it, it was even argued that the third could have been a 10-8 round under the new unified rules. Yeah. I was from to back mount to knee on belly, back to mount, to, and I'm landing strikes and elbows and stuff the whole time. Uh, in my eyes, I thought I won it. Uh, yeah. And you were people in the arena's eyes that thought I won it. I, I never heard of that many people boo before. That was the biggest arena that I ever fought in, obviously. Sure. But, uh, you know, it is what it is. You know, you learn from your mistakes. You know that that really changed changed my my I you know my mentality when I'm in there fighting and stuff. Really, that was when it clicked for me that third round of Bellator. Well, and you know, as as much as losing by split decision or losing at all sucks, to end on such a dominant round is a moral victory. You know that you went out in a great way. You obviously had the gas tank. You obviously had the game plan. You had dominance. I would say as a as a fan and as a coach, um, I'm not – I don't quite understand why judges favor – I understand judges favoring takedowns. I do not understand why judges fa 
favored failed takedowns. That's just not something that I get. I mean, I guess you, you see it as control, but I, I much rather see you up against the cage doing like the, um, the Travis Brown type elbows and stuff. To me, you're the one mounting the offense at that point. I, I don't quite understand. I think that's one of the failures of octagonal control and, and, you know, and kind of looking at, and, and kind of looking at the judging methods because you're the one that's actually the aggressor at that point. All he's doing is holding you to the cage. So it's kind of a weird thing. And thank you for giving us that honest feedback and obviously hats off to your opponent because the reality is the game is that judges decide who wins and loses, but goes to a decision. And that's what you guys sign up for. And so obviously you have to respect that, but it does suck when it doesn't really seem to have matched what the, what the fight was. But I still wanted to ask you about that. And I'm glad you were able to give us feedback. Yeah, my, my take on that is I, I think, you know, a, if you're going to be a judge of an MMA event that you should have to, you should have had to compete in an MMA fight. You know what I mean? If, yes. if an ex fighter, you know, a retired fighter should be a judge in my opinion, because they're the ones that are in there. They're the ones that have done it before they know. Um, I would like to see that happen, but I don't know. You know, that's out of my control. Yeah, I think that's part of the problem that we see now. Going to the 10A point system, I think, is difficult for judges who don't have that MMA background. I think it's going to be a work in progress. And, you know, I know Big John McCarthy holds clinic to instruct referees. There's got to be something that would uh, would help the judges. Yeah, absolutely. Most of the most of the referees in the game were were fighters before they were referees. I mean, even the ones here on the regional shows in Pennsylvania, they were all fighters or they were coaches or instructors or something. Um, I mean, no offense to some of these judges, but I, I've seen some judges that look like they never got off the couch or off the computer chair. Right. You know what I mean? Well, just just to and I think you're bringing up a great point, Ethan. One thing. I agree with you completely that that judges need to I would say judges need to respect all aspects of the game. I if it goes to judges only being former fighters, I think that would be fine. I I don't have skin in the game on that. But but what I've seen as a as a coach and also understanding how people are sometimes is that my concern would be if you go all fighters while I think that would be fine, I'd be concerned that former fighters would score it based on what their style was. So you can imagine a, a, a Chris Lieben really discounting some takedowns because, hey, after all, the guy had a couple good flurries. Not, I'm not insulting Chris Lieben here. I'm just saying yeah. somebody kind of was oh, no, a little yeah, off the feet. Yeah, I'm just saying I, every, every judge needs to check their own biases. I, I agree that if you go – former fighters then at least they'd understand but some former fighters really only appreciate what their style is i've been around enough mma to know that some of the coaches of mma some coaches that i won't name in corners i've been in have literally said during a fight to me i don't know why this isn't on the ground already this striking stuff is crap i'm a bjj coach i'm here to coach bjj and they're not doing bjj and i'm looking at i was like dude this is mma the goal of mma is whatever style it takes to win, win. It doesn't mean you can't use BJJ. It doesn't mean you can't use judo like like Rowdy Ronda Rousey showed out or if you can't use taekwondo like Wonderboy. But the reality of MMA is that there's some coaches that coach MMA that only want to see their style or only want to see their art form 
demonstrating. And I think obviously you've got a great camp around you and, and you're getting people around you that want you to win in MMA. And if it takes using Muay Thai, if it takes using boxing, it takes using grappling, using BJJ, um, then that's how you have to do it. So I, I think that sometimes trickles in to judges where, where, where judges really like to see what they like to see and they forget that the goal of a fight to pick who won the fight. And so getting back to your Bellator, from what you're telling me, you, you won the fight. So winning the fight should matter more than a style. But, but anyhow, that's, we could talk about this probably a whole lot. Jim, do you have any other questions for um, Ethan before we go to our in the pit? Yeah, uh, a couple things. One, I wanted to say that that was an excellent point about introducing fighters as judges. Because I do believe that you would end up with a situation where, you know, somebody's working toward belt promotion and they're focusing on a certain aspect of BJJ, whatever their uh, martial art is. And if they see something that they're actually going through at that time, I think they would be more inclined to lean towards the fighter who is, who's pushing that submission or trying to force the game to go a certain way. So with that said, a loosely based segue into my question for you, Ethan, you know, you've got your coaches and you just talked about it. You said it was Darren Cassidy. Did I get his name right? Yeah, that's, that's uh, my striking and, and, wrestling coach okay so when you go into a fight camp and we may have covered this last time we talked to you but your uh your opponent cavender fights out of michigan yeah i think he's got five pro fights you know and i think this would be more the norm than not and that is there there isn't a lot of footage out there for the regional circuit to game plan against your opponent so what's that approach toward your opponent i mean do you try to get a sense for what they're going to bring into uh, the cage with you, or do you just let that fight adjust to it as that fight evolves? Um, no, I mean obviously you like to you like to find some kind of film um, just to get an, an idea, a general idea of certain things. Um, but like us, you know, we don't focus. We don't sit there and, and watch and watch and watch and study and study and study and try to pick something apart. You know, we, we when we first get booked, we check out the film. You know, I go over it. I watch it. I send it to the coaches. They watch it. I take their feedback. You know, what they think needs to be done and what I and I think needs to be done. And, uh, you know, we go from there. But I don't I don't sit and, you know, try to watch film every night of the week, you know, all week long. Cause I feel like you get in your own head if you do that. Yeah. Um, so I, I try not to try not to really evolve on that because no matter what you do, I think Mike Tyson said it best. Uh, everything changes when you get punched in the face. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? No matter what you do, you can't study somebody in their last fight because they're obviously going to make adjustments whether they win or they lose. Where, where they feel they need to make them adjustments. So you can't study them too hardcore, but uh, um, there's always, always going to be in-fight adjustments. And uh, in the world of MMA, there's always going to be some type of adversity in the fight. You know what I mean? Whether it's minor adversity or major adversity, whether you get dropped and you're not about half knocked out, or, uh, you know, you might be caught, almost caught in a slick submission. There's always something that you have to be ready for. So... Uh, I, re- I like I said I like to rely on that now, so I like to rely on being able to make them reads at the moment, 
in in the ring because they're you know some people call it rising to the occasion i i like to call it on back on the highest level you're trained at so okay so uh my other question is you know mma fancast was in state college to cover that fight and one of the things i recall i feel like my recollection of that night was pretty good it was from start to finish was an awesome event but i feel like your fight with Salas was one of three fights where the crowd really got into it. You know, the other two being Mazada and Ed Ruth. And with that big of a backing behind you, I'm assuming that you could feel the crowd, you know, rise and fall with the flow of the fight and their lean towards you. So what was that experience like for that night versus your next fight, which was you know, a totally different crowd and atmosphere. Uh, yeah, I mean, it wasn't nothing that I wasn't used to because I fought at home before when they had the shows in Altoona. And, uh, you know, I've been telling promoters for the past few years now that I have a, a big fan base, you know, if you let me fight at home. If you give me the chance to fight at home, I can sell you 200, 200 seats of people. And, uh, you know, it was different at the Bryce Jordan Center because it was, you know, 10,000 people. Um, you know, I was announced as being from coming from State College. You know, I was a local. I, I mean, I was, I'm, I'm closer there. And uh, there's a lot of people that come out of the woodwork that bought tickets offline and stuff that I didn't even know of. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's pretty, it's a pretty cool experience. You know what I mean? Hearing that many people chant your name or cheer for you or, or or do whatever but uh you know and then going to the fight in uh in december which was in wilkesbury which is two and a half hours maybe a little bit farther away from where i'm from uh i still was able to bring 25 people you know to come watch that fight and uh you know so i i got, I got a great support system and uh i got a lot of people that back back me and uh you know believe in what i do so uh, that's all. That's always a help. That is probably about the same distance. What is it, Phillipsburg or or Petersburg? Petersburg. I'm from Petersburg. Yeah. Okay. It's a small it's little town. Close even to have it's pretty like close it. to State College. Yeah. Hey, I'm about 25 minutes, 30 minutes from State College. Now, um, when you went, you know, your uh, travels to uh, to Wilkesbury, and now coming down to um, just south of Pittsburgh, how far away from your hometown would you consider it to be uh, a home crowd or a home event for you? Um, you know, Pittsburgh, going to Pittsburgh, I've been to Pittsburgh many, many times as an amateur. And, uh, you know, I was able to build a fan base out there that that I never thought I could, you know, just because people, you know, for some reason they like my fighting style or they, they got behind me or whatever. Um, so even Pittsburgh, like for me to fight in Pittsburgh, even when I was fighting the hometown guys in Pittsburgh, it still didn't feel like I was fighting out of town. But, uh, you know, I've been to Ohio. I fought in Ohio. I got booed in Ohio whenever they, they announced me from Happy Valley, you know. And uh, But none of it makes a difference to me, really, to be honest with you. I'm there to do one thing, and, and that's, that's to do one job, and that's to fight. Um, what the crowd reacts like, that's, that's what they're going to be like. Uh, there's nothing I can change yet. If I can win them over with how I fight, you know, great. That, that'll, that'll work. Uh, I'm not going to go into anybody's hometown or, or any outside crowd 
and try to play the bad guy or, you know, try to get the booze or, you know, something like that. I'm just, I'm going to be me and I'm going to do me and uh, be myself. And uh, if you like me, great. If you don't, then that's your opinion. Right. Well, we, uh, we certainly uh, are looking forward to April 6th. That fight is at South Point, Cannonsburg, PA. It is Princecape Arena. I know that we're going to be seeing a lot more of you, at least I hope, um, with 247 Fighting Championships. Uh, before we let you go, though, we have a segment that, you know, we're still toying around with it and doing some uh, tinkering here and there, but it's called In the Pit. It revolves around Pittsburgh and your knowledge, what ties you may have to it, and are you a Pittsburgher or you don't even, you know, count in our book? So the way it's going to work tonight, which, which is a little change from how we've done things in the past, is Luke and I are going to give you, what do we decide, uh, two or three? Two questions apiece. Two questions apiece, yeah. So and once, uh, once we give you that question, you've got five seconds to answer it. Each uh, question is worth five points. Yep. If... Uh, if you get it wrong and it is way off base, then you actually lose double the amount of points that you would have um, had coming towards you. So, um, and then, you know, at the end of what we would consider like a, our uh, in the pit season, we're going to have, you know, some sort of uh, award to give out, maybe a, like a ketchup bottle or, you know, something that represents. <laughs> we'll, we'll find out if, if you're good or not. Okay. First question. Remember, um, five seconds after you have five seconds to, uh, to answer. Um, and here we go with the first question. So um, who was off the head coaching position for the Pittsburgh Steelers before Chuck Knoll was, uh, was made the offer? Oh, hell, I don't know. <laughs> I, I couldn't even give you yeah, I, I would think that um, you being a state college boy might have uh, been able to come up with that answer. Is Joe Paterno? He was offered seventy thousand dollars a year. This was in nineteen sixty nine, and he turned that down. He was still making twenty thousand years as a head coach at Penn State. Uh, never knew that. There you go. Um, I'm going to change this question up a little bit, but here it goes. What famous PBS child's show was filmed in pittsburgh what's what famous children's show that aired on pbs was filmed in pittsburgh um mr rogers neighborhood ding 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 we have a winner very nicely done jim back to you okay uh which football team this is college which college football team has more national titles University of Pittsburgh Panthers or Penn State University Nittany Lions? Uh, I got to go with the Nittany Lions, I'm guessing. Ding, ding, ding. That is incorrect, sir. Um, Incorrect. Wow. That is incorrect. Yes. Hail to Pitt. Pitt has nine, while lowly Penn State has only seven. That I didn't know. I didn't know Pitt had that many. There it is. There it is. What is. Pop. What is the item pop? P O P. That's soda. Ding, ding, ding. He's doing pretty well, all things considered. Jim, finish us off. All right. So, uh, one last question. This is, you know, it doesn't really count whether or not, uh, you know, to make you a Pittsburgher or not, but um, 
what does the phrase that's it Fort Pitt mean that's it Fort Pitt that's it or tit is that what you said no 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 that's it Fort Pitt oh man I don't know no idea all right Luke you want to tell him Yes, uh, we always ask that question at the end. That's it, Fort Pitt is an expression to mean we're all done, it's a wrap, let's get out of here. And so we always ask that last because that's our way of kind of doing a sign-off to wrap up I our podcast. Yeah. I got you. So they are. Uh, very this, clever. This is a oh, – thank you. This has been a good job, good effort. This has been Ethan Goss on uh, MMA FanCast. And so special thanks to Ethan Goss for taking time out. Check him out April 6th um, for 247 Fighting Championship. This has been Luke Payson and Jim Mooney. Thank you for stopping by and saying that's it for it.